I am I'm delighted to see you in the in the chairs today. Um, this would not have been a good weekend to have gone camping. Uh, and I know up in Stanley, our favorite place, it's probably freezing at night because it just gets so cold. Probably snowed up there, who knows, and iced. We're going to be going on a, a new journey today for a little while. I don't know how long. Uh, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 6 through 8. I have a really nerdy title for this, for this series. JT hates the titles of my messages because they're so long. But uh, this is called The Locus Classicus for the Doctrine of Sanctification. You'll know why I named it that here in a second. Uh, but but it, it just fits. So it's also fun to say. But um, the reason that we're approaching this is because, um, and, I, and I don't mean to sound like a broken record, and I gave you fair warning, but back in 2017, I believe it was, I had a powerful uh, personal revival in my own life there in Georgia, and God set me on a journey that ended up with me finally enrolling in, into seminary again after being out for a long time. And going into a doctor of ministry program, in which case uh, it cult, the, the whole program culminates in what's known as a ministry project, uh, and really the difference between a, a PhD and a and a doctor of ministry degree is uh, a PhD is they both contain dissertations. One is completely confined to the library, the PhD. And the other one is, is the library, and then you have to take it to the church you're in and prove it. So, it seems harder to me, but uh, this is something that we have to evaluate and walk through together as a church. And I think that's why it's appropriate for us to the reason why God led me to do it. It certainly isn't because I need letters after my name at all. It's because of this burden in my soul to be able to have the necessary help that I'm getting from school on how to write and communicate this. That's, that's the purpose. So Romans chapter 6 through 8, I've recently discovered after having spent the last five years, really, studying on sanctification, uh, finally was hit with something new in listening to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, the sermon audio app, if you don't have it, is probably one of the most beneficial and helpful tools we can have at our disposal at all times. So if I go run outside on, or on the treadmill, I'm always preloading a sermon. And uh, sometimes I really don't know what to pick from, sometimes. And I had the editors or choice, they have some they recommend that you can pick from. And lo and behold, there it was, and, and I've learned that... Uh, as I was piecing together, working through my project outline, uh, Romans has a lot to say about sanctification, but there, it's also in other books too. But Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' treatment of it introduced me to the fact that of all the Bible, Old and New Testament, Romans chapter 6 through 8 would be the main place that you could satisfactorily treat this doctrine of sanctification. Now you say, well, why, what's the big deal? Why is it important? I'm going to read to you some a recent May 10th, 2022 uh, statistics 
uh, over uh, ministers having a biblical worldview that I received from JT last week. He sent it to me. So this is May 10th, 2022. Does everyone here know what a worldview is? This is how you view the world. So, uh, you know, that's where you get into your political choices. That's where you get into your environmental concerns or your uh, educational preferences or your work ethic, uh, the way you raise family. All of those things comes from and is informed by your worldview. Well, your, your biblical worldview then would then say, I view the world through a biblical sense. And you would think that's pretty important for Christians to have a biblical worldview, right? Okay. Well, what about ministers? Is it important for pastors and pastoral staff to have a biblical worldview? This is May 10th, 2022. So this, this just, just happened. This was from the, the Arizona Christian University by way of George Barna uh, research. I'm going to read the introductory statement, and then we're going to get into some of these things. I'm going to move through this. People have many expectations of pastors of Christian churches, and rightfully so. One of those expectations is that pastors possess a philosophy of life that largely reflects biblical principles, a perspective commonly called a biblical worldview. I've just covered that. By the way, can I just say something real quick before we go any further? There are a million things right now that can compete for your attention. You may have stresses on your mind. You may have worries and concerns. You may have a task list a mile long of what you're going to do on the Lord's day. Okay. But right now you're here. So please, I'm just, I'm begging you, pay attention. This is a means of grace that God's given us right now. Let's take full advantage of it. Just give me the little time that I need. And please, let's grow together here. A new nationwide survey among representative sample of American Christians, America's Christian pastors show that a large, and this was a thousand that they polled, a thousand, okay? A large majority of those pastors do not possess a biblical worldview. In fact, just slightly more than, than a third, 37% out of a thousand have a biblical worldview and the majority 62% possess a hybrid worldview known as syncretism. You know what syncretism is, everybody? If you all had the old dial watches and we all said, let's synchronize our watches to the same time, that means all steeples lead to heaven, all talk of God's the same, it all culminates the same way, all scriptures are the same. Okay. So this is what they found out of a thousand pastors. Among all Christian pastors in the United States, slightly more than one out of every three, 37%, possess a biblical worldview. The proportion varies by the pastoral position held, so it gets worse. Among senior pastors, four out of ten have a biblical worldview. So at least four out of the ten pastors have a biblical worldview. The highest incidence among any of the five pastoral studies. Next highest was the 28% among associate pastors. Okay, so at least 28% out of 1,000 had a biblical worldview. 
less than half as many teaching pastors. 13% of teaching pastors have a biblical worldview. And children's and youth pastors, there's only 12% of them that have a biblical worldview. Now, this is funny, this last one, because you may not know what this is. The lowest level of biblical worldview was among executive pastors. Now, an executive pastor is when you get into the big, large churches. You have a senior pastor who would, who would the best way I can break this down to, so you can understand it is, let's say that the senior pastor was the owner of the company. The executive pastor would be the CFO, CEO kind of guy. He's, he's taking care of all of the, the budgets and the administrations and all of that stuff. Right underneath the senior pastor, right? 4%. 4% of those have a biblical worldview. Do you know what that's saying? What that's saying is, is that more than 6 out of 10 pastors, 62%, have a predominantly centristic worldview. That a, the majority of our pastoral ministry today if you took it as a whole, according to the sample, believe all steeples lead to heaven. And they embrace other dogmas and ideas and philosophies from the world. Okay? Um, now it gets better. For instance, after 37% of Christian pastors having a biblical worldview compared to just 2% of the parents of preteens. 2% of the parents of preteens have a biblical worldview. Go to the last page here. Barna, a veteran researcher, he said this, this is another strong piece of evidence that the culture is influencing the American church more than the Christian churches are influencing the culture. This research indicates that Americans are more likely to experience a positive impact on their worldview by hanging, at, uh, hanging out with, and I'm going to give you another label of a group of people, what they call sage cons. Sage cons. And, and, and basically what I can understand these people to be are people who are identify as Christian, but they seem to marry their Bible with politics. Those kind. So he's saying the research indicates that Americans are more likely to experience a positive impact on their worldview by hanging out with basically politically charged Christians than they are by being in the presence or under their teaching pastors. In other words, you might get more of a Christian worldview from listening to Sean Hannity than you would by coming to church. And then he says this. God is in the transformation business. Pastors who are willing to allow Him to transform their thinking and behavior can emerge from that process as a powerful example of what can happen when one's heart, mind, and soul are surrendered to God. Barna said, It certainly seems that if America is going to experience a spiritual revival, that awakening is needed just as desperately in our pulpits as in the pews. I'm going to give you the problem in expanded view of what I've come up with to frame what I call 
the reason for the project with which I feel undertaken to, to, uh, to attempt. The problem that we face is a failure of 21st century Western Christians to understand and apply the doctrine of sanctification to personal holiness. You understand what that's saying? Specifically, modern Western Christians failing to understand what sanctification is in God's redemptive work in your life after justification and applying it to how you live every day in holy distinction from the world so that you don't become 37%, right? The result is a weak and lethargic church with no power, no passion, and an ever-increasing conformity to the world around them. Does anyone disagree? Because that's what we see happening. And we have the statistics to show it. And by the way, that was just one set of, st- uh, of stats that I've, I've looked at recently. So here we are, and I'm, gonna, I'm a word guy, I like analogies. I'm always picked on them because I, I use them so much. Let's say, I'm going to build this really awesome truck, and I... Let's say we have a completely restored International Scout. It's got a six-inch lift kit on it. It's got, I don't know who put their motors in them, so I'm just going to use a 464 barrel, okay? And, uh, and we even have, maybe we even have it, uh, some stuff added to it to make it breathe better, right? And we got some Mickey Thompsons. Anyone know what those are? Those are the big monster mutter tires that you put on these things. This sucker's... This truck's a hog. And, and our job is we are on a flat plane. And there's nothing between us and another tree even for 100 miles. And there's been a big heavy rain. And we got to get across there. We're headed across this massive plane to get to the other side. Because under this big grove of trees is food and water and friends. And we're starting across. There's four lined up in the International Scout. And we're driving along. And we're putting it, and we've got it just right. We're headed along, and somewhere around midpoint, we drop to the frame. We're buried up to the frame. All four tires are just sitting there idling, spinning. You ever been stuck that bad where it's just idling and spinning? There's nothing you can do. There's not a tree for yards and yards, maybe even a mile away. There's nothing. No one's coming. They don't, you have no rope, you have no shovel, you have nothing. And then when you step outside, you sink up to your ankles. There's nothing you can do. You don't have the strength. You're stuck. You ever been that stuck? I've been that stuck. So, that's the church today. In the West and in America. It's stuck up to its frame. The only hope it has, and it's a big hope, is that God, who's right there, 
will reach down and simply pull it out and set you going again. Except he's going to change your direction. He may pick you up and set you back down a quarter mile from where you thought you would be going and in a totally different direction. That's called revival. When God reaches down and picks you up and moves you to a better footing. If that doesn't happen to the church, then all will be left are buildings with bed and breakfasts and businesses being run out of them. That's why this problem is so important to grab. That's why you and your life, you, you and me individually have to do what we can in our own private lives individually to seek God in revival. Okay? Romans 6 through 8, why do we call it the locus classicus? From the Latin... First of all, the word locus means the place. And the word classicus means belonging to the first or highest class. In other words, when we call something that's written down a locus classicus, it means a passage regarded as the original or best known occurrence of a quotation, saying, theme, or the principal authority on a subject. So what are we saying? That Romans 6 through 8 is the best and highest place you can go to fashion your understanding of what sanctification is. It isn't the only place, but it's the best place to start and go out from there. It's the locus classicus. Number two, in extended use, it's the place of origin or place from which the best examples of something are said to come. That's why Romans 6 through 8. To reiterate, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he writes this. You cannot read truly about God Himself in His being and His person without, without its promoting your sanctification. So when you read your Bible as a Christian, you're reading what is, what is informing and transforming you. The Word of God is, is informing and transforming you. How you think. How you reason. How you identify as a person on this earth. And where, where you are and in your location in life. Your vocation. The doctrine of God. The doctrine of sin. The law of God. The doctrine of punishment, of judgment, and of hell. All that is truth. And points in the direction of sanctification. It is the whole truth. What we find in Scripture. And what God wants to do in Scripture. Is cause it to leave, to leave the pages. Go into our souls. And come out through actions. That's, that's what Scripture is to do. Is to inform us. And that's what's called the sanctification process. The transforming. But while that is perfectly true, he goes on to say, it is also true to say that there are certain statements in Scripture and certain sections of it in which the great doctrine concerning sanctification is dealt with in a very explicit 
and specific manner. And in many ways, the most striking illustration of that, he writes, that we may well call the locus classicus of biblical teaching in respect to sanctification is undoubtedly chapter 6, 7, and 8 of the epistle to the Romans. And he says this, and just by way of reiteration, now I want to emphasize that this is not the only place where sanctification is dealt with. It is to be found everywhere. But these chapters deal with it in an explicit manner. In Romans chapter 6, then, when you read Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, you do enter into a different uh, response from Paul in talking about what happens after, or the process, after justification. Because I, I want to remind us all here, if you know Christ here, you were saved at a point in time somewhere. You came, you were, you were born again. And, and for some of you, it was like back when they still had black and white TVs. And for some of you, it could be that, you know, iPads just came out or something. But you had a point. The biggest part of your salvation experience, your redemption, that you are partaking in is the sanctification part. Because it's the point from when you were justified before God until you die and are glorified with Him in glory. So how long is that section? It's the biggest part. I mean, not compared to eternity, but right now. So should we know about that? Should we understand that? We should, but it's largely overlooked. Because we have this idea that, well, I've been saved and I'm born, and now I'm just going to live. That'd be like us having this little precious boy up here. And, 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 and Wes and Maddie saying, he's born, he's here. We've got a room stocked full of stuff. We just chunked him in there, and we'll wait and see in 20 years. Okay? And I hope it all turns out. He'll get some bumps and bruises, but if, if he's fit, he'll survive. And we treat Christians like that. Newborn babes, we treat them like that. We think, of, we think of, of, of our part in this thing as kind of hands-off sometimes. And I want you to know, if, if you're in Christ and you know the Lord Jesus, you have a major responsibility in pursuing sanctification in your life and cooperating with God as He initiates the day-by-day transformation of your life. But we don't often think about that. Whether you're wading through potato barns, teaching class, driving a truck, you're out. Maybe you're in your retirement years. If you aren't dead, God has a work for you and a work to do in you for his glory. Do you think that's serious? I do. Because we are the ones. We are the ones. With which worldviews are shaped. We are the church on the earth. How we live preaches a gospel to the world. The question is it is a genuine, accurate one. Is there passion? Is there drive? Is there pursuit? Or are you numbed by the lullaby of hell 
in our country because it's so easy to just go along. How easy is it to be a Christian here in this country? Okay, there's no way to answer that. It's just, it cost us nothing. Did you know that's about to change? Did you know the winds of change are telling us so? That's going to change. Let's look here, if you will, at Romans 5.20. The reason we're looking at Romans 6 is because Romans 6-8 through 8 is simply a response from Paul to those who are accusing him of antinomianism. <laughs> that uh, somehow... As we've been talking about, these are the Ten Commandments that I have up here. That the moral law of God in the Christian's life is no longer binding. That we don't, we don't have to do any of that. And that's kind of true and not true. It's not true in the sense that if you're talking about the Christian's responsibility in keeping the moral law for justification, you're right. We cannot keep the moral law of God in its perfection and be justified because we can never keep it. We need Christ who kept it for us. But after the fact of Christ and in our sanctification out of a heart of gratitude, we should seek to imbibe in our life the outplay, at least the outplay of the moral law of God, shouldn't we? And what you say, what are you saying? Well, let's just start with the fact that we shall have no other gods other than God alone. Remember, I just said, 62% of ministers have a centristic worldview. That means they have idolatry mixed in with biblical theology. What do you think of that? Where, where do you think this notion comes from that God's changed His mind on what men and women are? Or who can be married? Or that, uh, that, that, that there's no such, that, that somehow uh, race is, 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 a, is, a, is a negative or a blind spot. And that, that there, there's this uh, overreach of oppression stuff that somehow God is, is, is made a mistake. And I don't, there's just all this stuff leaks into it. 62% of ministers teach that garbage. And they twist the scriptures to do it. So Paul says to them, because of this, in Romans 5.20. Let's look at Romans 5.20. I've got it on the screen. Here's the statement Paul made, and you'll hear it today. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Because he's celebrating justification. But then where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, he writes. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me put it up in the NLT to make it a little clearer. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. And then he said in Romans 6.14... Uh, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. So what's happened then is, they've taken these passages that says, uh, and elsewhere, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, okay? And then, 
Sin does have dominion over you. You're not under law. You're under grace. Have you ever heard a Christian dismiss their sinful activities? They say, I'm not under law. I'm under grace. We don't need to, do, we don't need to pay attention to the moral law of God because we're not under law. We're under grace. And Paul is defending the position that we are definitely involved now in, in working out our salvation not to have it, but as having it, as possessing it, to represent Christ in a way that is glorifying to God, right? And infectious to the culture around us. Who all likes to be around an inspiring person? I do. I'm often not very... I mean, and and that's the human struggle. We're not always going to be inspiring. But I thank God through Jesus Christ, and that's what Paul is saying here, that when we fail, God's grace is greater than our failure, and He will put us back on the right track. But there are those in their mind that check out and say, it doesn't matter how I live. If... (laughs) Because basically what they reason is, if Paul said people sin more and more, and God's grace became more abundant, then hey, I'll just sin more and more, and I'll get more grace. Have you ever heard people say that? Because I have. That's how twisted and messed up things can get. And you sit sit where you are now, and you think, is this really what people do? And, and I would just simply say, ask you this. Do you think that Christianity in America is healthy? Is it healthy? Or does it look more like the world? And why is that? Because the same things that they were arguing against Paul To us, they are saying now, we can just do what we want to do because grace will abound much more. I mean, after all, I'm saved by grace, right? Jesus paid it all. I'm not under condemnation. I I can do whatever I want to do. And you and I would sit back and read our Bibles and we would say, I'm not too sure you know Christ at all. Because if you truly met him, you would never want to make such statements in your life. But then if you are born again, truly, and this is where you've come to, I would say, surely this should be a wake-up call for you and say, I think I've allowed myself to be informed and influenced rather than to be transformed and be an influencer. Because we're not doing very good. And when I say we, I want you to understand something. I'm not talking about us by ourselves here at Northridge. Although there are some of us here at Northridge, I'm assuming in a group this size, that have a basement full of garbage that needs to be dealt with in their biblical worldview and in the way they live their everyday life and in the sins that they tolerate. In other words, their sanctification is sort of ethereal. It's out there, but you know, that's God's stuff. I'm not under law. I'm under grace. But if you take all the churches in America and you put that together, all the t- t- statistics show that that's where we are. I want to talk about the use of the law then. There are th- there's what's known as three uses of the law. How about that? 
The first use of the law is to convict of sin and to drive the repentant sinner to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God for it. Because I can't keep these things, man. All ten, I, I can't. In a day, I fail so badly, right? Let's talk about have no other gods before me. I, I have a short story. I was listening to Leonard Ravenhill. Is anyone familiar with Leonard Ravenhill? He was big back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s and preached a lot on revival. Was just a wow, he was a powerful voice. All of his books have exclamation points behind every sentence. But he had a friend that was inspiring to him. He was a, a Christian friend when Leonard was starting off in ministry and, and getting involved. And this man was full of love for Jesus, was a dynamic preacher and a soul winner. And, and, and Leonard loved to spend time with this man. And then one day that friend started collecting stamps. And then one day as it progressed on, uh, he got, Leonard got a call from his friend and said, Come over. I just spent $50,000 on a couple of British colonial stamps. And that's where I was thinking for stamps. Well, that's not my idol of choice, so I can disparage it. Okay? He goes over there. He said this, this and, and here's what Leonard uh, communicated. This man, once full of fire and passion and concern for God and His Word and the lost, now had that same passion and drive for stamps. They were just stamps. He, he didn't lose his salvation. He was a Christian. That what happened? He had a false god pop up, didn't he? Now, I don't know what happened to him at the end. The Bible tells us that God's going to complete that which he starts in us. And so I'm sure that God and that man had a reckoning. But... The point of the matter is, even on having no other gods, you don't be so quick to say you don't. That's just number one. And we don't have time for all ten. The second use of the law is to restrain lawlessness in society. Well, I guess we know how that's going, right? I was talking to Rinda yesterday in response to we just had another school shooting in Texas in Uvalde. And everybody wants to take away the means by which it happened instead of going to the reason by which it happened. And I got to talking to Rindy about mental uh, illness. And I don't remember which presidency it was that actually kind of took the funding. Just mental illness. So the second table of the law then that we have kicked out of our country and Christians have really, you have to understand, when revival comes to a nation, it begins in the house of God by bringing judgment to the house of God first in dealing with our sin and our oversight, right? We haven't done a good job of keeping those with sincerity. The third use of the law is to function as the rule of life for the believer. Did you hear that? The rule of life for the believer. So are you since sanctification then is you being sensitive to that behavior or those behaviors which might get the best of you. So I have a personal example. It's garden season. I feel compelled to put in a pretty good garden this year. I just have this conviction that if 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 you can grow food you ought to grow it. You should at least know how, right? So it takes some time and attention. I've been working on it since February. Weather, 
and it's just kind of become like, ugh, there's lots of things if you do it that you have to just deal with. It's kind of like farming. It is what it is, which is tautology. And I was, but I was, but I was, I'm, I, I hate it because it does require mental attention that I don't like to give. And I'm like, Lord, override my thoughts. Don't let those things sneak in where you ought to be. That don't let anything else, in fact, God, interfere with what I need to be about thinking in my head today or where I need to do. All things in its own place. You can do that with a hobby, a loved, a loved one, a spouse. You can do that with a job. God, jobs get it a lot. You can do it with, uh, well, is there anything off limits that can't become an idol in your life? I'm having to lean forward because I want to get it in the microphone. Well, he goes on to say, one of the most famous statements of this comes from the Puritan Samuel Bolton. Samuel Bolton writes this, The law sends us to the gospel for our justification. The gospel sends us to the law to frame our way of life. So I say, I will not murder. I will not hate that person because that's like murder. If I'm sensitive to the Lord and I'm paying attention to my sanctification, I've got to be careful about the person I don't like. And there are people I don't like. And I don't like that I don't like people sometimes. You ever met someone you just flat don't... There's they. You don't even have to speak. It's just kind of like... You know, that's weird. And we don't want to commit adultery. We don't want to steal... We don't want to do any of these things. And Jesus carried that up to such a higher level. And this is how we should frame our life because it keeps us from getting off into the ditch. Remember I said we're in an international scout with a six-inch lift and 44 Mickey Thompsons on it. We're buried up to our frame. The chief means then of our sanctification and will be done. John 17, 14 through 19, Jesus says, and this is when he's praying not only for his disciples that he had then, but us too who are to come. I have given them your word, Jesus says, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. I hope so. If you're living a right Christian life, that's how it should be. Just as I am not of the world, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Then he says this, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world, and sanctify them by your truth. And he writes this, your word is truth. So what is the chief means of sanctification? What do you hear me say all the time? Read your Bible every day. Also pray. I should tag that all the time too. He said, as you sent me into the world, Jesus says, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sake, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified. And what does he say? By the truth. Sanctify them by your word. The word of God is the chief means by which the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. Remember we talked about biblical worldview. And what is a, what a, a worldview is simply a philosophy of words strung together in ideas that cause you to believe a certain way or think a certain way, right? A biblical worldview then is the, is the scripture 
taken in, causing you to think a certain way and believe a certain way, right? You should be able to diagnose it right off the bat. And so Jesus says, therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. What? Let that. What is what? Should, what should abide in us in 1 John? What is John saying? Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. What do we hear? We hear words. What words is he referring to? The words of God. Let that abide in you. And if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will abide in the Son and in the Father. The word of God is the chief means that God uses through the power of the Holy Spirit to sanctify you, to separate you off from the world and make you distinct. Would you say today that Christians in America are truly distinct from all the rest around them? Or is it kind of hard to see the distinction? It's kind of hard to see the distinction. Wes was out. He had planted corn a little too early this year, and uh, he was hoping to see. He was hoping to see something poke, poke, poke up through the weeds and grass and everything else. And uh, he was out there with his phone on Facetime with his big finger on Facetime. He goes, "Look, I think that's a corn. Looks like a grass." Well, how can you tell? I said, "If it's that young, it's kind of tough." And there's the analogy. Can people tell if we're a corn or a grass? There's so many weeds around. That's where we need to pay attention to our sanctification. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. That's what Peter said, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Did you see that? The word of his grace connected to the sanctification of your life. Colossians 3, let the word of Christ, what was it? The word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with grace, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. But what is, let the word of Christ dwell in you. I like how John MacArthur sums all this up. Sanctification doesn't happen by osmosis. You can't have your Bible in your room with you and not read it and think it's going to just somehow go over there. You can't put it under your pillow and have your head rest on it and think it's going to get in there. Okay? You have to read it and engage your mind when you read it. Doesn't happen by osmosis. We can't starve ourselves spiritually. Get this. And still expect to grow in the likeness of Christ. Man shall not live by bread alone, Jesus told Satan, but by what? What? But by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Not just keep it in your cupboard. Not just have it in the back of your car. Read it. And then he writes, All the, all the facets of Scripture... All its rich benefits and blessings are not available, are not available to those who fall 
or refuse to open it and study. And I would commend you this last thought as I'm done. There's only one reason, well, two, but they're the same, of why the church in America and in the Western nations look like they do. Because if you want to get real, all the stuff about homosexuality and transgenderism and, 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 and critical race theory and ban the police and, blah, 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 and all that stuff is happening in the Western nations. The very place from which the word of God from the Reformation forward was dispensed in such power. Why did it happen? Because we went from a people who were like this to a people who were like this. That's why. God's still saving people. We're born again. But we are weak. Because we are weak in the scriptures. The chief means of sanctification is the scriptures. We're going to have a, JT's going to come. And as he plays, I'm going to ask Chloe if you want to go ahead and go get changed. Where are you when it comes to the scriptures? Did you think it would end up anywhere else? Rich, i got to tell you, brother, because I've been talking to Rich a lot about this, this project. In the, in the entirety of all the works written on sanctification, i got to tell you, you don't find much new stuff on it. It always comes back to what you do as a Christian with the scriptures. The word of God arresting you and changing you. Christian, clearly this was for you today. Who do you love more? You or Jesus? You say, I'm not sure. All right. Just look at your life. That's all of us. Just look at your life. JT. The altar's open if you need to pray. Maybe you want to go to someone and pray with them. Maybe you just want to sit right where you are and say, Lord, I have really botched this. And I want to remind you, this is where it is true that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Just say this, Lord. Forgive me, please, and set me right. I'm buried up to my frame. Come pull me out. Pull us out, Lord. Now you're talking revival. Pull us out. Do it. We have no hope but you.